you please join me in prayer? Father, we come before you with anticipation. Anxiety and excitement. Father, in each and every season of our lives, in each and every day, we wake up with breath given to us by you, sustained by you. And we're all learning in new and in different times how to walk as a faithful follower of Jesus Christ. Lord, we're becoming even more keenly aware than ever before how important your word is. How we need to come back here for strength and sustenance. To be fed by you. For to whom else shall we go? You alone hold the words of eternal life. Amen. New York Times cover story, August 9, 2020, this summer, right before everybody was going to come back. Maybe some of you saw this, maybe some of you didn't. As the story rolls online, this is the first picture that you see. As the nation watches and what's happening in this little community in the northwest corner of Iowa. The opening line in January 2016, Donald J. Trump gave a campaign speech at a small Christian college in Sioux Center, Iowa. And standing in front of a three-story pipe organ, he said, I have the most loyal people. I could stand in the middle of Fifth Avenue and shoot somebody, and I wouldn't lose any voters, okay? Right here. But the article continues. But he said something else that day, and his intended audience heard him. Christianity will have power. I'm not starting here because I want to make some partisan political statement. Far from it. I remember watching Barack Obama on TV talk about America as the last great hope for the world. Presidents before and leaders in this nation and around the world have conflated the gospel with a sense of nationalism or patriotism or sort of usurped and known that there's something more there. There's something that could be tapped into, and if you could just simply harness that energy, it would be like lightning and would be able to power the world. But you see, the type of power that the world deals with, Democrat and Republican, weapon holder and protester, is different than the power that Jesus promised we would have. And perhaps the most important thing that could ever come out of this place is not how big the name of a speaker is, whoever stands on this stage, but what happens in the quiet recesses of the hearts of the 1,600 people who go here as students right now, or the 19,000 who have gone before them, and the internal decisions that they're making inside of their life of what it is that they're targeted toward and pinning their hopes upon. And it is my prayer that we are more energized by a call and a mandate of a gospel that is infused with power above any throne or authority in this world and the next 
that we would get more jazzed about that than whatever the current cultural conversation is. Jesus said it himself, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Jesus said it in the last thing he shared with the disciples before the ascension, you will have power. You'll receive it. You won't grasp for it. You won't vote for it. You won't kick down a door of opportunity in your career that will create it. The power that you long for the most in this world is nothing that can be attained by ever reaching out. It only ever happens by opening up. This power cannot be taken. It cannot be earned. It cannot be bought. It can only be received. And this power comes not when your preferred candidate occupies a certain office somewhere in this country. And the power that Jesus is talking about doesn't come when you hit a certain plateau in your career or establish so many followers on social media. Let us remind ourselves that we are still inside of a story where the greatest authority and power is still the name above all names. It is above every office in every land, above every king, every authoritarian dictator, over every regime, over every military, over every nuclear weapon that has ever been produced, over everything. That is a different kind of power. And it only comes in the Holy Spirit. So let's talk about that. If we're going to talk from this stage about the fact that Christianity will have power, let's talk about it in the terms that Jesus spoke it and promised it. So what I want to do with you this semester all the way up until Advent is take a look at Colossians chapter 3. I want to look at verses 1 to 14, and this is the famous passage that moves towards uh, Paul talking about what it means to put on the clothing of Christ, to be distinguished in this world as followers of Jesus, and put on uh, a power and an authority that's different than the one the world clamors for. And can we remind ourselves again how it is that we find back our footing when it feels in the, in the middle of a biological, social, and political combination of pandemics, we still have the best place in the world to plant our feet. You will have power. You'll receive it. On Jesus' terms, through the gifting of the Holy Spirit, and I thought, man, for a time in life where it feels like we've lost control of so many things in our lives, isn't it beautiful to be reminded again that we haven't lost the things that matter the most? People are telling us what to put on our faces. People are telling us how far to stay away from people. But you know, all these little social and behavioral things, the small potatoes, compared to the orientation of our hearts. So we talk about putting on the clothing of Christ. We're going to get to that within this text. And I've always kind of laughed when you see people sort of put on, not the clothing of Christ as it's talked about in Paul, but the way it's sort of sold at different tables at Christian music festivals. 
you know, clothing of Christ like this. Catch up with Jesus. Blessed from my head to my toes. Or I may not be perfect, but Jesus thinks I'm to die for it. Aw. This would be a great one in a North and East Hall. I put the stud in Bible study. Or how about this one from the Make Jesus Cool Again collection? I wear this one at home for my kids. Hey, don't make me use my pastor voice. Then you've got like the ones that are maybe just a little more edgy. God is dead. But maybe this is the one that more people should be putting on these days. Lord, keep your arm around my shoulder and your hand over my mouth. You realize that so many of the things that Jesus said would distinguish us in the world and then so many of the ways that Paul and other New Testament writers would go on to describe what it looks like when the Holy Spirit comes upon us have very little to do with the things that we say and so much to do by the way that we would be recognized in our interactions with one another. Your life can preach an incredible sermon even if it's half covered by a mask. Acts of service speak very loudly today. You see, because whenever pressures come upon us or we hit awkward times in life, everyone's natural and fleshly reaction is to become a little more selfish and a little more grabby. We, we start fighting for our own. We start talking about ourselves more and we lose our capacity to be open to the world and to the excitement of what God is doing in other people. We tunnel in on ourselves. The harder the pressures come. It's interesting talking to students who are in quarantine and isolation even right now because they'll tell the story about, right, you become sort of obsessive within your own thoughts and you don't have other people to sort of pull you outside of yourself. So it's sort of like um, this, this mental health and spiritual retreat challenge going on at the same time of being locked alone with your own thoughts. We were meant to be poured out. We were meant to be distinguished in this world through the pulpit of our lives by putting on the real clothing of Christ. So you'll see this sign all over the place, on this campus and beyond. But what is distinguishing you right now, and at this moment in time what the world needs from every follower of Jesus, is not any one political statement of whether or whether or not we're following this or that cultural or medical voice leader right now but how we treat one another in those conversations, how we treat someone who's going to vote different than we are in November. Kindness, humility, gentleness. Do you ever notice that in all the listings of the fruit of the Spirit or putting on the clothing of Christ, that great argumentative points are never included in that? Or the ability to slam somebody and then post it on social media didn't make the list. Kindness did. Gentleness did. And it's becoming rarer and rarer. So maybe letting Christ have those things in our life now might actually be like putting a microphone in front of our own living before the world. I'll show you what I mean. This is the text. Look at the first four verses today in Colossians 3. Paul says, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. 
And set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. So I want to point out some key lines in this text. First of all, since. This is kind of like an if-then clause, but it's assumed. Like, if you have been raised with Christ. So he's writing to Christians and followers of Jesus, self-proclaimed. So he's just going to assume this. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. And it's not, hey, you might want to think about the possibility that what if you were... It's like, no, 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 like, I'm just to declare this over you. This is your reality. If you are in Christ, if you are a follower of Jesus, then you have been raised with Christ. This is a past tense declaration. So he's going on to say, let your thinking and your sight and your imagination and your feelings begin to align with your reality. See, so many of us are reactive right now in how we're engaging the rest of the world around us. We're simply responding. What Paul wants followers of Jesus to be able to do is to be so anchored in Christ that we are the immovable object in those instances. That our circumstances will not dictate how it is that we are feeling, what it is that we are learning, how open we are to the next movement of God. So Jesus accepts this as reality. And then in the next line, set your hearts on things above. Set your minds on things above. The word set here is the same one that's used in Matthew 6, 33, where Jesus is talking about seek first the kingdom. Like to seek, to set. I went boating this summer with some good friends, and they were saying they were having a problem. Every time that they would just sort of stop the boat and throw the anchor and want to float in that place, they realized that even just the current and the wind would make them drag each time. And then a friend finally told them, well, actually, for this lake bottom, you have the wrong anchor. So they went and got one of the new anchors that he had recommended, and every time they threw that out, the boat wouldn't move anywhere anymore. The invitation right now is for us to anchor, to set our lives, to orient, kingdom orienteering, due north, facing Christ, eyes on him, not distracted. And that is, that is so hard to do when the voices around us are getting louder and angrier and inviting us into a further polarization. This is one of the greatest tricks of the evil one, to cause points of division between Christ's own people. If we allow that to happen between us, then we've already surrendered victory. This cannot be what happens to us. So you have to anchor, you have to set, you have to, you have to seek first. You've got to put all of these things and realize what is more important than another. So read the dashboard within your life, okay? I noticed this towards the end of last year. Mark Sayers calls it our digital nervous system, how plugged in we are to things online and stories and social media, and that our bodies are reacting and our anxiety is climbing and our blood pressure is changing based on external factors and not where we have oriented our lives and declared our allegiance first and foremost. And so we're getting swept up in these conversations. They're not set. And we're not seeking first. But when we do those things, it allows us to be a refreshing change 
from a world that seems to be moving and slipping out of people's hands very quickly. In their commentary on Colossians, Brian Walsh and Sylvia Kiesmatt in a book called Colossians Remixed says it like this, set your hearts on and allow your imaginations to be liberated, to comprehend Christ's legitimate rule. I realized in my own life I was getting so swept up in these things that I decided at the beginning of the year to give up all social media and sports apps and news apps on my phone so that I wouldn't constantly be triggered by whatever the next little story was coming and my body reacting to it. I want my life to be more dictated by one voice that I'm oriented towards. And I'm so afraid right now that in this cultural moment there are more Christians whose lives are saying to the world that they have an allegiance to something more important than Jesus. And whether that's the financial security we're chasing in uncertain times or pinning hope on an earthly figure rather than the king of kings. So read your own digital nervous system right now. What are you responding to? What gets you riled up the most? If we're not still the most excited about what Jesus is doing in the world, we might want to ask ourselves if our inputs need to be recalibrated and rethought through. Reflecting on this verse, N.T. Wright says it like this, to concentrate the mind on the character of Jesus Christ, on that unique blend of love and strength revealed in the Gospels, is to begin on earth to reflect the very life of heaven. See, to get set in, in our minds and our hearts on the things above, on Christ, is to anchor into the future and to pull it into the present. The movement of the disciple of Jesus every time we pray is to go fishing into the future and to pull it into the present. To do something that nobody else who's not in Christ has the ability or the, to do or the capacity to understand. Now, this sounds kind of otherworldly, right? Because we're talking about set your mind on things above, set your hearts on things above. So it sounds like pie in the sky when we die stuff and sort of a strand of Christianity that could say, well, don't worry about everything here and now because that doesn't really matter. But that's not true. Christianity isn't about developing a pie, on the, pie in the sky when we die theology. Christianity at its essence is about cake on the plate while we wait theology. It's about the here and now. The resurrection was physical. Heaven is obsessed with what's happening on earth. It was created through its imagination and for its glory. Heaven is fascinated by what is taking place here. And the only reason we're fixing our gaze there and where we're anchoring in there and we're setting there and we're seeking that first is not because we're trying to ignore the significance of political events or social events or racial tension or any of these things because there is a desperately needed Christian voice into each and every one of those things. The reason why we do that is answered in the text itself because that's where Jesus is. We put our focus there because that's where Jesus is. It's not because this doesn't matter. It's because this is only going to matter in the way that matters the most if we've got that part right. Where is our gaze? Where is our focus? What are we set towards? See, because when this happens, 
This is the current reality. He says, your life is now hidden with Christ in God. What a strange way to describe this. Why hidden? I think that word in this text puzzled me more than any other in the last couple weeks thinking about this message. And I think it's this. It's hidden because most people in the world are still associating power with wealth and beauty and corner offices and degree titles and status. And the list goes on. Because without the eyes of faith, you just simply can't see it. Satan comes before Jesus in the temptation. Look at all the earthly power things he offers up before him. And yet then Jesus goes and orients his entire life not towards the throne in Rome or to rule in Jerusalem, but to a cross and a resurrection that leads to the throne above all thrones. And in these lines, Paul is telling the early believers and telling us now the same thing again. Rome might still control the economy, and so it looks like it's more powerful. Rome might still have the biggest military, so it looks like it's the most powerful thing, and therefore it deserves all of your attention and energy. But the reality is the true reality that your life is hidden with Christ and God. Walsh and Kiesmatt in that commentary go on to talk about the fact that every empire of the world wants you to believe that what you see is what you get. And the kingdom of God wants you to know that what you can't see yet is what you get. And so, so many times, the, the invitation to New Testament believers isn't to escape the present circumstance or to fly away by and by, but rather to look at it again. Look at it again. Look at it with fresh eyes. How does a Christian follower of Jesus, confident in the end of the story, look at this cultural moment and think about what they want to tell their children about what we did with this? You will. You know that, right? Your grandchildren, they will ask you about what it was like to live in 2020. And the only thing that I want to be proud to tell them is that I was so sold out for Jesus that I wasn't swayed by the bigger conversations taking place in society. Not that I wasn't involved in them, but I wasn't overly swayed by them. I wasn't wrapped up in it. It didn't gain an allegiance in my life higher than Jesus, but rather through the lens of Scripture and the wisdom of the Spirit, I began to engage them as a follower of Jesus and not along talking points dictated to me by my favorite news outlet. Because those are vastly different. I love how verse 4 ends. When Christ who is your life. Christ is your life. There you go. There's the encouragement. There's the application and the parting blessing all wrapped up. Christ is your life. And so far in Colossians, this is what Paul has been all about. Your very life was created through Christ, redeemed by Christ, raised with Christ, is hidden in Christ, and will appear with Christ. Do you sense a theme? This is where we are wrapped up in. This is what matters the most. I'm going to ask Jeremy and the band to come on up. I want to grab a passage a minute. I want to read to you while they do. This is from earlier in the book of Colossians, sometimes referred to as the Christological hymn of Colossians in chapter 1. 
You tell me if there's room for an allegiance left for anything other than Jesus after hearing these words. The Son is the image of the invisible God. He is the firstborn over all creation, for in Him all things hold together. In Him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through Him and for Him. He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together, and He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead, so that in everything He might have the supremacy. For God was pleased to have all of His fullness dwell in Him, and through Him to reconcile to Himself all things whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Will you join me in a song of declaration to the one who's worthy of it all?